Good morning. It's been a few weeks since I've preached. That was um, four weeks, actually. That was entirely by accident. And uh, Meg said to me um, a week or two ago, I was like, you're really itching to preach again, aren't you? I'm like, yeah. Um, but I'm very thankful for Marty and for Randy for uh, the messages of the last four weeks. It was wonderful just to sit under your guys' teaching. I appreciate that. Um, there is a, um, a company that you may not be aware of, but you've probably seen their product advertised. The name of the company is the same as their product that you see. It's a, a sticker that, uh, um, or, or logo that shows up on stickers and t-shirts and uh, bags and backpacks and everything. It's called Live a Great Story. Uh, have any of you guys seen this logo ever before? Uh, it's around uh, a lot of times with uh, camping, hiking, stuff like that, travel. Um, it was created a few years ago by a guy by the name of Zach Horvat. Uh, and Zach, when he was in his early 20s, took some time um, off from school and just went to Europe um, for a few months and just traveled around Europe all over the place uh, meeting people. And uh, his story is really kind of an interesting story. Uh, he would just, he'd go to a, a city, he'd stay there as long as he felt like, he'd meet people, he'd make friends, he'd try to learn languages or overcome language barriers as best as he could. Um, and as this was happening, he kept running into people who had really, really amazing stories about their lives. Uh, run in, it ran into somebody who'd escaped North Korea, had run into somebody that, that was doing you know, this thing or that thing or the other thing, and just really amazing stories. And, and over the course of a, a, um, about six or seven months, as I understand it, like he kept meeting people that had these amazing stories and uh, felt so um, uh, kind of uh, blessed to have had all of these encounters with all these great people. And then uh, an idea kind of struck him and he said, well, what if it isn't just that I keep meeting people who have great stories? What if everybody's got a great story? Um, and, and so he founded this company, Live a Great Story, in order to help people understand that the story of your life is a great story that is worth living and worth sharing with somebody else. Uh, what, a, what a cool idea. Um, stories are really important. Stories are really important to us as individuals, as a society. Stories are how we uh, entertain ourselves, right? Books, movies. Stories are how we teach ourselves. Stories are how we educate ourselves. Stories are how we, we relate to one another. When, when we start getting to know one another, maybe the first time you meet somebody, there's some, just some facts and figures. I live here, I'm this age, I went to this college. But after a while, when you really wanna to get to know somebody, it's not so much about the statistics anymore, right? You start telling stories about your life. Let me tell you about this thing that happened in college or this one time when I was driving to wherever I had this adventure and let me tell you about it. And, and so stories are the way that we relate to one another and stories are the way that we kind of exist collectively together. Stories um, hold those things that we consider most dear as um, a community or a people group or even a nation or, or um, whatever. And whether it's in your small group of friends, that one story that bonds you that you'll never forget and you still get together every few years to celebrate um, and get a beer over, or whether it's, um, whether it's a national story that um, has left an imprint on, a, on a, a whole nation of people, stories are monumentally important to us. And so I want to look at a couple of stories today about stories. Uh, we are still in the midst of Luke. We've been, we've been going through Luke for the last several weeks, and we have a few more 
weeks in Luke still ahead of us. And as we have been, been wandering around the Gospel of Luke, we have been trying to pay attention to who Jesus is and what Jesus does in order to see how he lives and, and what kind of a human he is so that, that we may understand what kind of human beings we ought to be as well. Well, today's stories uh, are about Jesus, but he is not the central figure in those stories. And so there's two stories I want to look at today, one from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, one from the end of the Gospel of Luke. They're, they're almost bookends to the Gospel, uh, to be honest. And uh, these stories are about stories. One of them is unique to the Gospel of Luke. The other one is not. The first one is in Luke chapter 2, and it's the unique one. This story, even though it's probably very well known to most of us, it's part of the, the shepherd's story, right, that we tell at Christmas times, usually a Christmas story. Uh, this story is uh, unique to Luke. We only know it from Luke's gospel. We don't know why Luke decided to include this story. It was probably very important among the Christians, among whom he worshipped and lived and, and where he did his writing. Um, but this was um, a monumentally important story for them, and, and the the. We know the birth of Jesus, we know the shepherds are out in their field at night, we know the angels appear, they make their, their proclamation, they sing uh, their Gloria and Excelsis Deo, and then this is what happens immediately after that. Luke chapter 2, verse 15 and following. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. And when they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen as it had been told to them. Like I said, normally this is the Christmas story for us. Um, this is, again, unique to Luke. The Magi story is unique to Matthew. That's where we get most of our nativity from, is Matthew and Luke. Mark and John don't seem to care quite as much about the infant narratives of Jesus for whatever reason, but Matthew and Luke do. And uh, Matthew tells us about the Magi coming from the east. Luke tells us about the shepherds in the field. And when the shepherds in the field show up, they find everything exactly as has been told to them by the angels. They worship, they're amazed, they're overjoyed. Um, and usually that's kind of where we end the story when we talk about it at Christmas time. When we tell the shepherd's story, uh, the emphasis is usually on the angels um, and the song that they sing and the pronouncement that they make. Right? Glory to God in the highest heavens and upon earth, peace, uh, goodwill to men. And so this is kind of where we usually focus the shepherd story. But I, if we push past that a little bit, something really interesting happens. And the story becomes about telling a story. After the shepherds come and they see the thing that had been told to them, what do they do? Do they just shut up about it? No, they made known, right? That's what our text says. They made known all of these things. They told what had happened. They shared their story. It's part of the reason that their story is included in the Bible in the first place is because they told their story. 
That story persisted over the years in Christian communities until it was written down by Luke, the story of the shepherds who had encountered uh, Jesus. And so uh, them telling their story becomes part of the good news about Jesus. Well, let's jump from Christmas to Easter, shall we? Let's, let's do a little bit of Bible whiplash, okay? And move from Luke chapter 2 to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, this story is not unique. In fact, this story shows up in some way or form in all four of the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Luke, and John more or less agree. Mark is very weird with his version of this story, but whatever. Uh, Luke, uh, this is how he tells it. This is after the death and burial of Jesus. Luke 24, beginning in the first verse. But on the first day of the week, early, um, at early dawn, they, that is the, the women, came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them, and the women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women uh, with them who told this to the apostles. Again, this is the Easter story. Again, it is not a unique story to Luke. All of the Gospels share this piece of information in some way, shape, or form. We know that Jesus is risen. We know that the, the stone was rolled away from the tomb. We know that the women found the empty tomb. And, um, and that is fantastic. And when we tell this story, when we tell the Easter story, usually our focus is on the stone being rolled away. Uh, normally our focus is on um, the, 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 the soldiers who, who quaked and became like dead men. Normally our focus is on the angels and their pronouncement, he is not here, he is risen. Uh, and then we, we kind of push forward after that to the disciples meeting Jesus, and we tend to skip over the women. Shocking in American Christianity that we tend to skip over the women, I know. Um, but that's what happens a lot of times when we tell this story. But here again, in the story of Easter, we have a story about telling stories, right? What do the women do when they find an empty tomb? What do they do with the knowledge that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Do they keep that to themselves? Do they hide away with that particular knowledge? Absolutely not. They go back and they tell Peter and the 11 and everyone else. All the rest of them told this to the apostles and to everyone who was with them. Now, as we take a look at these two stories um, together really quickly, there's two things that are, I think, worth noting. One is that both of these stories, these bookends of the Gospel of Luke, the story of the shepherds and the story of women, um, teach us a couple of things. One that I don't want to miss is that the story of Jesus includes people who are often marginalized people. The story of Jesus includes people who are often left out of 
other people's stories. Shepherds aren't the star of very many stories. Uh, these women are not the star of very many stories in their world. And so the story of Jesus often, and in fact, um, almost always, is the story of including marginalized people. And I don't want to rush past that without acknowledging it. But there's something else I want us to see, is that the story of Jesus is the story of people telling stories. Right? The story of Jesus is the story of people telling stories. When people encounter Jesus whether as a baby or whether as the resurrected Lord or even as they go through life out in the world and the rest of the gospel, when people encounter Jesus, they often tell their story about their encounter with Jesus. In fact, very few times in the gospel does somebody meet Jesus and not tell somebody else about it. Even when Jesus tells them not to do that, which he does a lot, right? Jesus is often like, okay, I, I've healed you, that's great, shh. And they're like, nah, this is too good of a story, right? Now I have this great story, what do you do with a great story? You gotta tell it, you gotta share it, right? And so people go and they share their story, whether it's, it's people who have been healed um, from illness, whether it's people who have been healed um, from some kind of uh, physical ailment, whether it's people who have been healed from demon possession. Think about Randy's sermon a couple of weeks ago after uh, Jesus drove the demons, the legion of demons, out of the man in the region of the Gerasenes. He actually commanded this guy, go tell your story, right? Go, go back to your people and tell what God has done for you. You've got a story now. What do we do with a great story? We go tell our story. And this is how the good news travels, story to story, the shepherd's story, a healed person's story, the women's story. These stories form the basis of what we call the good news. And so when we want to share, be a people who share good news, when we want to be a people who introduce others to Jesus, what is it that we need to do to, to do that well? Is it facts and figures about Jesus? Is it being able to, to quote just the right Bible verses in the right order? Is that how we introduce people to Jesus? How do people introduce Jesus to others in the Bible? They tell their story. Story becomes this way of the good news traveling from person to person. And the Bible is filled with people telling stories, whether it's Joseph telling his own story or Moses or David or Paul or Stephen. The Exodus story is told again and again. How many times is the Exodus story told in the course of the Old Testament, Marty? Like a zillion, right? Uh, the Exodus story is told again and again and again and again. The Bible is filled with people telling their stories. I really appreciated this, um, this line. I, uh, Marty, I'm reading your book right now. Um, and I appreciated this line that I came across this week that says, indeed, they, the biblical authors, are trying to tell the story. They're trying to tell the story 
of God's people in a way that illuminates what God is doing in their midst and what he is inviting them to become. The biblical authors are telling stories. The characters in the Bible are telling stories. The authors of the Bible are telling a story. They're not just recording facts and figures. They're not just recording data for us. They're not impartial uh, recorders of history, but they have an intentional story that they want to tell. They want you to know about the goodness of God. They want you to know about his creation. They want you to know about his love. They want you to know about his redemption. They want you to know about his rescue. They want you to know about his patience and long-suffering mercy and forgiveness. They want you to know about his justice. They want you to know about, um, about his wrath and his forgiveness. They want you to know all of these things. They, they write their books in order to tell this story. And not only do the authors and the characters have a story to tell, but the Bible has a story to tell as well. There's an overarching narrative that travels through both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament. And we believe that this story ultimately finds its, its climax in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is the core of that story. That, that Jesus, God with us, is what everything has been pointing to and what everything comes from. These stories are so important. These stories are how we learn and connect and grow. They're, they're what kept Israel going in the desert for 40 years. What did you think they were doing in the desert? They told the stories of their ancestors. It's what happened in Israel. It's how Israel managed when everything was falling apart and their kings were awful and terrible human beings and the kings were leading the people astray. It's how the people always managed to come back to God because somebody remembered and retold the stories. They told the stories of the Exodus. They told the stories of coming into the land. They told the stories of God's provision. It's how Israel managed to keep itself from, from just fracturing into a million little pieces because they clung tightly to their story. It's how the church survives. I don't know if we all remember this all of the time, but the Bible did not drop fully formed out of heaven the day after the resurrection. All right? In fact, we don't have the, the earliest complete Bible that we are aware of, that, we, that archaeologists have uncovered, uh, it dates to around 200 A.D. Now, Possibly there were, there were complete Bibles before that, but the earliest one we've ever found is around 200 A.D. And, and the Bible probably isn't finished being written until at least 100 A.D. And so for the first 100 to 200 years of the church's existence, there is no open your Bible to Philippians chapter 7, verse 32. There is no Bible to do that with. What do you have instead? Stories. You have the stories of the gospel. You have the stories of Paul and the apostles. You have the stories of what God has done in Israel and then 
what the church has done out of Israel and into Asia Minor and into Greece and into the rest of the world. And story is what kept the church together during those first fragile few hundred years. Story is monumentally important to us. Story is how the good news goes out from us. Story is how we remember what God is doing. Story is how we build theology. Story is how we build theology. Just like the Bible did not drop fully formed, neither did theology. And in fact, a lot of the theological frameworks and a lot of the theological things that the church has believed over the course of 2,000 years uh, are nowhere spelled out verbatim in the Bible. Uh, for example, the word Trinity does not exist in the Bible. We celebrated Trinity Sunday uh, just last week. Uh, that word is not in Scripture anywhere, and yet we have a doctrine, maybe one of the most important doctrines that the church has believed over 2,000 years, that we have one God revealed in three persons, the Creator, the Son, and the Spirit. This is part of the core of Christianity, has been since the beginning. It's, there's no verse in the Bible I can go to to point that out to you. How did we come to that piece of theology? We took what was in the Scripture and lensed it through the context of our stories. That's how theology gets made, by the way. Theology gets made when we take Scripture and our context, our story, and we merge them together. I so appreciate, Marty, your sermon from last week uh, of the importance of the text and the need to hagah over the text, the need to, to hover over it, to meditate on it, to, to rip into it, to devour it. The text of Scripture is so vitally important to us, but we have to be very careful that we don't elevate the text of Scripture to an undue place. Scripture is this God-breathed, God-inspired word for us, but it doesn't have every single answer that we might need for every single situation in life. And so we take the word of Scripture, and then we take our life experience, our story, and we look at them through the lens of each other. And just as scripture can't be elevated too highly, neither can our own story be elevated too highly. But, but we see our, our story through the context of scripture. And we see scripture through the context of our story. And that's how we, we get to theology. Let me show you this in action in the Bible. I'm going to leave Luke for a minute and go to the, um, the gospel of Acts, the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 15. This is maybe my favorite chapter in um, the New Testament um, that is in the book of Acts. Um, I, I have a favorite chapter in every book, sue me. Um, but this is maybe my favorite chapter in the book of Acts. This is the first time that we are aware of that the church gets together to decide what it believes. Okay. As far as we know, this is the first time the church gets together to decide what it believes. This is the beginning of creating theology. And here's how it goes. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. The matter is, how do Gentiles become Christians? That's the question. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers... You know 
that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that, uh, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and then listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, as it is written, and here he quotes the book of Amos, the prophet Amos from from the Hebrew Bible. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins, I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Did you catch what happens as the church gets together to decide what it believes? Peter stands up and he tells his story. You all know, you've all heard the story. It happened in Acts chapter 10, by the way. You know how I went to Cornelius' household. You know what happened when I got there. You know that God poured the Spirit out. How, do, how would they know that? Peter told them. He had a story, and he went back to the rest of the apostles and the other church. He said, guys, um, I was at a Gentile's house, and weird stuff started going down. Let me tell you about it. Peter had told them the story, and he gets up here in Acts chapter 15, and he tells it again. You know what had happened. Remember the story. And then Paul and Barnabas get up. And they begin to tell their stories. They begin to tell of all the signs and wonders. Let me tell you what God has been doing in and among the Gentiles. Let me tell you how they're embracing the resurrection of Jesus. Let me tell you how they're turning from their idols. Let me tell you how they're being healed. Let me tell you how they're being filled with the Holy Spirit and being baptized. Let me tell you the stories of our adventures in these Gentile lands. And then James gets up. And he takes these stories, and what does he do with them? He brings in Scripture, right? He says, guys, these stories remind me of something the prophet has said. And he brings in Scripture. And these stories begin to become interpreted through the light of Scripture. And the Scripture becomes interpreted through the stories. And the holy words of God... And our own meager, feeble words, they come together to form something really beautiful. And it's out of that that the, the first 
written piece of theology that we have came to exist. Right there in Acts chapter 15. Again, we don't want to elevate the Bible unduly high, neither do we want to elevate our stories unduly high, but we need both, right? We need the lens of our own context, our own story for the Bible. We need the lens of the Bible's context to understand our stories, each understood in the context of the other. And our understanding about God is shaped by story. Our understanding about God is shaped by the stories of the Bible. Our understanding about God is shaped by our own stories. Virtually every person, as I said before, who comes in contact with Jesus has a story to tell. And guess what? So do we. Every person who has ever come in contact with Jesus, including people here in this room, we have stories to tell. There's a really beautiful verse in the Psalms um, that I come back to again and again and again. It's in Psalm 66. Um, Psalm 66, 16 says this. It says, come and hear all you who fear the Lord, and I will tell what he has done for me. I will tell what God has done. I lived with my grandmother and grandfather for about three months when I was in college on the other side of the river in Kentucky. I was doing my summer internship working at a small country church down there, and uh, it, was, it was a joy and delight to spend time with my grandparents. I had not really gotten to do that in long-term ways before. It had always been, you know, Christmas or um, something like that. And so it was wonderful to get to know my grandmother and grandfather as like actual human beings and not just people that gave presents. Um, except that my grandmother, who was a, was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman, um, only knew five stories. I'm not kidding. My grandmother Imogene knew five stories. I lived with them for three months. Five stories for three months. Again and again and again and again until she would start the story and I'd be like, Grandma, I can finish this story for you. I know that you're going to tell me about your sister-in-law who stole your candlesticks from your wedding. I know you're going to tell me how you began to pray curses on her, and then God got a hold of your heart, and you started to, to pray blessings on her, and, and that was how God, God changed you and your sister-in-law's relationship. I know this story. Grandma, I know the story you're about to tell. It's one of these five stories. I know the characters. I can tell it for you. And I didn't understand at first, but by the time I left their house three months later, what I'd figured out was this, that these five stories were the five core truths about God that my grandmother held on to. It was a story about forgiveness. It was a story about how much she loved the church. It was a story about loving your neighbor. It was a story about God's providence. And it was a story about God's faithfulness. Those were the five stories. 
I can tell you most of them today. I can tell you four of them at least. I was thinking about it the other night. It's like, do I still remember those stories? It's been, it's been 23, 24 years. I can still tell you four of them. But more importantly than that, I can still tell you why she told them to me. I can still tell you about the love of God that lived in her for other people. I can still tell you how important Jesus was. I can still tell you what she believed because I know her stories. Come and listen, all you who fear God. I will tell you what he has done for me. Why would I tell that story? Why would I tell my stories? Because that's where the good news resides. Because that's where the story of God resides. Because that's where what I believe about God resides. You have a beautiful, great, wonderful, amazing, vibrant story to tell. You're living it day in and day out. And part of your story is the story of God. Part of your story is the story of what Jesus has done. Part of your story is the story of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. And so regardless of who you are, regardless of which generation you belong to, whether you're a millennial or an Xer or a boomer or a Z or, or whatever other generations there are represented among us, whether you are male or female, whether you are gay or straight, whether you are cis or trans, whatever state of affluence you are, whether you are single or married or widowed or divorced, whether you uh, work at home or work at an office or whatever you do, whoever you are, you have a story to tell. You have a story to tell. The question is, will you? Will you be willing to tell your story? Will you be like the shepherds who came and saw Jesus as an infant lying in a manger and then went and told everyone they could so that everyone they encountered was amazed at what God had done? Will you be like the women who came and saw the empty tomb and encountered the resurrected Jesus and went and told the apostles and all the others so that they could know the good news as well? And so that word of the resurrection and of new life could spread out from Jerusalem and into the world until it reached us too. Will you be like them? Will you tell your story? Or if you are here today, and you have not yet um, named Jesus as Lord and Savior, let me tell you that you have a place in Jesus' story. And if you're willing to and ready to connect your story with his, come and be a part of that story. Come and talk to Meg or me about what that means. And we would love to see you folded into the story of God so that his story becomes your story. We live in a world that is absolutely story-driven. We are shaped by story. We are holders and caretakers of stories, especially of the story of God throughout history and in our own lives. So live out that story. Share that story like the shepherds and like the women, like the first apostles, 
impact the world around you with the story that you have of what God has done for you. We want to continue in our time of worship by moving into, again, a time of, believe it or not, story. Go figure. It's a different kind of a story, and it's told in a different kind of a way. This story isn't so much told with words as it is told with objects. And the objects are on the table in front of us. This table is a story. It is a story in which we remember what God has done for us through Jesus. We remember the last time he was with his disciples in that upper room in Jerusalem. We remember the arguments about who was greatest in the kingdom and how Jesus settled that argument by getting down and washing their feet. We remember how they sang their hymns together. We remember how they went out to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. We remember how they broke bread and shared the cup. And they heard this good news of a new covenant. And so every time we come to the table, this is us retelling the story. It's us participating in the story. And we want to offer you an opportunity to do that this morning. If you are are, um, interested in taking communion, if you desire to take communion today, you are welcome at this table. It's not my table. It's not our table. It's Christ's table. He has set it. And the invitation is his for anyone who wants to come. So in just a moment, um, feel free to make your way to the table and take bread and take a cup of juice and then head back to your seats. And when everyone has had a chance to come to the table, we'll take those things together um, as a a whole community. Before we do, um, we speak words every week that remind us of um, who we are. Again, it's our way of placing ourselves into the story of God, reminding us of things that are true. Sometimes these are hard things to say, and sometimes they are easy things to say, but, but we say them each week to remind us of where we are in the story. And so if you are willing and able, would you please stand with me as we say these words of confession together before communion? <clears throat> 